happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode 208 for Thursday, February the 11th, 2021. And yes, we are here on a Thursday because of someone being silly. It would be me. But uh, my name is Wes Fryer. I'm coming to you from Balmy, Central Oklahoma, where it's 19 degrees tonight. It is so warm. But we are anticipating this Arctic blast that might bring 10 to 15 inches of snow on Sunday and Monday. And this is going to be the coldest temperatures we've had since 1983. And we actually may get to, to zero uh, with yeah, but but Jason is laughing. Uh, here in Oklahoma City, I am the, the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, um, teaching media literacy to fifth and sixth graders and helping coach our teachers on some technology. But I'm joined by the man who lives in the frigid north, not quite the great white north as Bob and Doug would know it, but relative to me, it is. How are you tonight in frigid Missoula land? Dr. Uh, I'm pretty good. Uh, I know that you, know, you have epic low temperatures hitting that, that uh, you know, low single digit, but I wanted to note in Missoula right now, it's negative four, uh, negative 19 if you include the wind chill. But that's not actually the cold spot in the state. Uh, this may not be it, uh, but it's got to be pretty close. It's negative 22 in Cutbank, Montana, which is in northeastern Montana near um, – uh, well, actually, kind of north central Montana near the uh, uh, U.S. Canadian border, and with wind chill, it feels a uh, crisp negative thirty nine in old Cupbank. So, uh, yeah, welcome to Montana weather. But luckily, I'm not a weather guy. I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana's state virtual school, located on the beautiful and very chilly University of Montana campus, right here in Missoula, Montana. And you know we're uh, we've had pretty epic uh, cold spell for the last week or so. Uh, it's been dumping snow. Uh, I think it snowed almost all day long, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Today, I, I kept my sidewalk shoveled, but today the wind kept blowing the snow back onto my sidewalk. So we had some drifts today, but um, we haven't had much of a winter so far. And I have to say, as I've mentioned in the past on the podcast, if we don't, have winter snow, then we almost certainly have summer fires. And so uh, I'm always very thankful when there's a lot of snowpack because up in the mountains, because that means that we have a meaningful chance of holding off a fire mageddon sort of things. But I don't think this podcast is about weather. Wes, what is the EdTech Situation Room all about? Well, we are here to talk about the past week's technology headlines through an educational lens. And tonight, uh, you can go to our links as always on edtechsr.com slash links. We'll be dropping the links that we discuss into our live chat, which you uh, are accessing either through YouTube or Facebook if you happen to be joining live. And our topics this week, as they typically are, are uh, some familiar titles, the tech correction, Apple, the Googles, Microsoft, privacy, security, connectivity, and space. And we'll end with a geek of the week, and we'll just prepare you in advance not to pass out, but I think I will limit myself to one geek of the week. So uh, where would you like to start tonight, Dr. Neifer? Well, uh, it's our top topic, and there's a lot of interesting things in there. 
Let's go ahead and head down the tech correction road. Uh, first and foremost, The Verge reported uh, yesterday on February 10th that, that Facebook is going to start testing, cutting back on political posts in the news feed. And um, this is actually, uh, it, to be honest, it seems like this is a little too little too late. I think there is a lot of potential to this. But Facebook wants to start seeing what engagement looks like when um, they start uh, reducing uh, uh, the the logarithmic kickup of political posts on the top of your feed. And um, they're going to start off with uh, three countries, Brazil, Canada, and Indonesia, and then assuming that test doesn't I don't know, blow things up, they'll try it in the United States a couple of weeks later. And... Um, you know, their project manager wrote in their announcement about this, the people don't want political content to take over their news feed. And, and I, I'm pretty sure the people have been saying this well before 2021. So it seems to me they're kind of a legger in the market here. And, you know, as we've talked about in the past on the podcast, I still can't wrap my brain around what the future of Facebook is if we are to figure out a way to not turn these tools into harbingers of, uh, of, of, of antisocial behavior, right? Like the bottom line is, is that we have to find a way to be social without being antisocial. And this is obviously a step in that direction. But at the same time, I also realized that people like to talk about politics and people politics is very personal. And, you know, what what has happened in the last, you know, four, five, six, seven years is that people's political views have become very much a part of their identity. And I don't there, there's obviously large implications to that, especially in light of the fact that, uh, well, to be honest, um uh, you know, politics is, is, is starting to become such a dividing factor in, in the way we relate to each other in the United States that, you know, I, I, do, I still don't know what an end game for Facebook looks like. But I guess I'll start off here, Wes. Um, does this impact your use or perception of Facebook at all if you saw less political posts on the platform? I mean, I'm not going to Facebook to see political posts. I I, I do follow some folks on Twitter and I see some things there. Uh, Facebook, I'm really connecting more with family and, you know, every once in a while I will share something political, but it's, it's kind of rare. Actually, food I found is the best thing to share. It brings people together. <laughs> I mean, really, it does. It's yeah, wonderful. It does. And, and, and I, um, you know, I have, I have some very conservative, uh, friends and folks. Uh, I went to college at a rather conservative institution. Uh, and, you know, I've got, I've got some folks that are definitely on the, the liberal side of things as well. And, um, you know, it's 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 really it's good to be in a in a potential community in a in a community where there's diversity and you can have different voices and 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 it's not just an echo chamber, but it's also somewhat perilous. And so, when you said this and read that headline, I'm reminded of the tobacco companies who were forced to not only you know put the the label on their packages, but also you know bas- actively promote public awareness and education campaigns that directly went against their bottom line and their profit margin. And I do think that Facebook here is trying to to do some things to try and prevent regulation and and and, and certainly try to prevent a wholesale change of their business model. Um, but ultimately, if we don't directly address the, the roots of surveillance capitalism, on which Facebook is built um, and, and, and address privacy and really carve out rights and, and have those rights 
you know, mean something with, with regulation and teeth and, and things that are written into, to, uh, legal code. You know, I, I don't think that we're going to substantially change the ways that these, these, uh, tools are being weaponized and, and really used against the causes of, um, you know, representative democracy. So it's interesting. They've chosen those countries as those trials. Um, I do think that, you know, this sounds positive, but to think that Facebook is going to be able to adequately regulate itself and stem, you know, off any kind of call for regulation and outside limitation on its power or questioning of its, you know, really it's, it's, it doesn't have to have gone as far as it did. I, yeah. and I'm not going to be able to remember the podcast that I was listening to where uh, an expert was smarter than I was talking about that. But, you know, maybe I can. Maybe it was actually Jason Snell uh, talking on either Twit. I think it was on Twit. And he was talking about how, you know, marketing and marketers, they, they, they want crazy amounts of information, but they, you don't have to have that much. And, and, and if you just sort of give them everything they want, they're going to take everything and they're going to, you know, just have so yeah. much granular data. But, you know, the thing is we're headed towards a world where we probably are going to have a digital passport. I was listening to, uh, I think it was BBC Digital Planet podcast tonight, and they were talking about this, um, not just in light of the pandemic, but they were talking about actually Brazil and banking and some real advances, advances, quote unquote, that, that Brazil is making and 100 million new people because of, you know, the payouts that the country has done during COVID, you know, now have bank accounts. And they're talking about, you know, how they're going to be, in, you know, enforcing a digital identity the information that's gathered, right? If you are having, you know, the centralized banking situation where there's all this data being exchanged, there can be all this data gathered. And we just, the trajectory of technology has been that the folks controlling the technology have greater and greater power. Think about schools and filtering and, and the ways that schools can have a heavy hand there. Potentially they, they don't all, but I, I do just kind of think that we're on a trajectory towards increased surveillance but it's it's that doesn't mean we should give up. And it also doesn't mean we just need to to cede, you know, all of our rights. And, oh, it's just there's nothing we can do. Uh, maybe if you live in the western province of China, there's little that you can do. Uh, and even if you try to do some things, you may be shipped off to a camp like, you know, apparently a couple million people have been. But we we need to to try to do what we can. And I think that that begins with privacy. Uh, the conversations that we have might be part of that. Uh, education is certainly a part of it. And um, it's, it's going to take more than Facebook, you know, take, taking some, some steps. Aren't, aren't, isn't Facebook so good to, to take some steps now that the election's <laughs> over? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then I want to put out one other article that I think is a fascinating read. Uh, this is a, an article from Recode, uh, how the COVID-19 pandemic broke next door. And, um, I, I have to say I have, I am on the, the next door social media network. And if you're not aware of this tool, next door is a social media platform that you have to be living in a neighborhood to access. Like you can access your neighborhood and, and, and the surrounding areas. The idea is, is they're trying to build kind of social camaraderie amongst neighbors. And uh, if I remember correctly, to get on this social network, I actually had to put my address in uh, along with my email address. They sent me a card in the mail to make sure I was at that address and I could utilize that address then um, to um, 
uh, uh, with a code to get into the network. And so I'm part of what's called the Southgate Triangle neighborhood in Missoula, Montana, and I joined next door. And I have to say, some of it is useful, but a lot of it is kind of the, you know, uh, uh, not necessarily friendly stuff that, 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 uh, you, you might hope to have when you're trying to promote neighbor, neighborliness, right? But this article talks about how the pandemic created a really bizarre, confluence of kind of the same kind of stuff you saw in other social networks, anti-science posts, um, a lot of, of anger directed to- towards public health officials. But it does tell the story of one gentleman, I believe it's a physicist, um, who lives in Al- Albuquerque, New Mexico, who was jumped on, uh, jumped on there and started trying to nudging people that were, you know, claiming things that, that were, um, uh, uh, well, really anti-science and, um, uh, 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 actually went out and, and told a neighbor. So someone else on, on his particular, uh, next door web or next door uh, area that when he said that the, the, uh, pandemic is a hoax intended to help push political candidates. He said, I'm sorry, this is not true. I demand that you take this down and actually reported it to the next door website and next door actually banned, uh, the account of the gentleman that re- reported the other thing saying that he was not being very neighbor like and also that, uh, he wasn't helping, uh, which is kind of the, the standard that they use for community in next door that your post and your activity on the platform should be helping, not hurting. And it just gives you a sense of the challenge that we have. I mean, I, I think it's very admirable that we want to create methods for people to connect one another and this, this or that neighborhood, but it is, uh, 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 you know, also very challenging if we can't also acknowledge that that we have to then police misinformation that might be happening inside of a neighborhood. The web looked a lot different when it was mainly populated by early adopters, right? Yeah. And as society in mass comes online, we bring society's issues and problems and crime and all kinds of things um, with us. So uh, it's interesting. Shel- my wife Shelly is on next door. Um, Every once in a while, I, I I honestly don't think I've opened the app in maybe a year. Um, it's uh you know we hear we we learn about cars that are broken into our neighborhood and you know some different things. Um, but it is uh, you know it, it, it's it's a reflection. There's a lot of ways in which yeah. technology is like a mirror. It, yep. it does reflect a lot of what's going on in in our society. And I think part of what we need to decide individually is to what degree do we want to have whatever is being reflected in that social media environment to be part of our mental, um, mental radar screen, mental landscape, you know, mental thought process. And, and I think it's something important to talk to kids. I've, I talked to my kids yeah. about hacking minds and, and how advertisements at a real basic level. And I say, I'm not anti-advertisement. I'm not anti-capitalism, right? And in fact, I want to know about things that are interesting to me. Like I love, cooking. I really do. And and it's been fun. In fact, with Facebook, we were talking about this before the show, like food brings people together. And it's really, uh, uh, I mean, what's great is to actually break bread together, not just virtually, you know, but like actually do it. Uh, Someday, Jason and I are going to be having some barbecue and some Missoula beer. And, you know, we're going to be we're going to be doing that in person. But anyway, it's uh, a good thing to to come together. But it also, um, you know, it's at some point, advertising uh, is manipulative, and we all need to be savvy. This is my Neil Postman channel here. We need to be savvy to how 
you know, we can be manipulated and, and, um, our lovers can be pushed, our buttons or whatever, lovers pulled and pushed, buttons pushed, whatever, you know, by advertisers. And this gets back, you know, right back to what we we're talking about with Facebook is that is really the heart of a lot of the criticism is, is how there's a lot of nudging going on. And if you've seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma, you must see it. So just put that on your bucket list right now, um, to, to watch as soon as you can. Because one of the, the things that really made clear in that is, um, how important nudging over time is and how it's really sort of the perfect, the perfect nudge machine, you know, to try and, and whether you're wanting to get somebody to buy a product or you're wanting to get somebody fired up about something or, or push them in a, in a way to, for, for political purposes, et cetera. Um, we just don't yet have a handle on this. There's really smart people, you know, much smarter than Jason and I are, that are, that are working on this. Uh, thankfully, but we don't have a handle on it. And I, I think it's interesting, and maybe we'll have an article about this, how the platforms themselves are more substantively dealing with it than regulators and governments. I mean, we have GDPR in Europe, but the thing, I, th I think I've got, no, maybe I'll just transition to this article. Is it, or did we talk about this with Chrome, the next version of Chrome with third party? Did we, did we do that one last week? Oh, we did not. I think we should definitely talk about that. Yeah. Okay. So I think I put it actually under privacy, maybe. No. Uh, is it under the Googles? No. Is it under the tech correction? Um, did we talk about it last week? Maybe, <laughs> maybe we did. Um, so the next, the next version of Chrome is going to basically, uh, get rid of third party. Maybe I didn't put this article in yet. It's going to get rid of third party, uh, advertisers, third party cookies. And I don't know if you've tried to install privacy badger or one of these other programs that will block these third party cookies, but it is shocking to see, you know, cause a cookie, Oh, that doesn't sound like a big deal, you know? And again, Oh, I'd like to see more relevant ads. So what's the big deal, but we're talking about hundreds and probably together, you know, thousands, but even just on individual web pages, you can have hundreds of things. And this is how we're tracked across the web. And even though all the experts will say your phone doesn't listen to you, I've heard multiple people and we've had the same experience where we've like my wife and I have talked about something and then she opens her Instagram feed or I do. And boom, what, what do we see here? There's an ad. Um, there, there are apps that you do, you know, give permission to your microphone tour, not to go, you know, grab my tinfoil hat and put it on. I'm kind of getting there, but anyway, it's this, this is a big deal. And so, so Google is taking some steps with their next version of Chrome to block these. Ironically, that may give Google more power in terms of how they're, they're handling, you know, tracking and, and what they're doing with that. But Apple also, I think is just trying to really, you know, uh, open up the transparency with requiring developers to disclose all the different ways that they, they collect information and have that right in front of us. And they're doing some other things to really push the industry. So I'll find, I'll try to find that article because I don't see it in the show notes from, from last week. And I don't think I see it here either, but it is a pretty, pretty important in terms of, of Google, I think, uh, advancing the, 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 the cause of privacy. And I would also note that one thing kind of related to this notion of things we can do to help 
you know, help evolve this process along. There's a great article in The Verge that talks about how social networks need better blocking tools. And Casey Newton argues that there's a whole host of new social networks that are on the horizon. Uh, one of them is called Block Party and the other one is called Clubhouse. And Blockhouse and Block Party, Blockhouse, Block Party and Clubhouse are new. I guess the best way to describe them is their audio social media uh, applications. I've not played around with them yet. Uh, in fact, hadn't heard of with them until this article. And then I go to find out when I search for Block Party, or I'm sorry, for, well, both Block Party and Clubhouse, that they're kind of big deals. So that gives you a sense that maybe social media is, is, is passing me by. But the reason why that I think it's important to talk about this is that both platforms have built in ways to block people you don't want to engage with, kind of baked into the initial premise of the, uh, um, of the social networking platforms itself. And the reason why I think that's a really important thing is because maybe that there's a new generation of social media applications. Uh, you know, a lot of people for a long time uh, would purport to talk about whatever the next Facebook was. I'm not saying necessarily that it's the next Facebook or not, but if we could start building some platforms that maybe could have a more trusting relationship with their users from the start and try to create ways to connect without, you know, creating the antisocial behaviors we talked about earlier, I think that would be a really good thing. Um, Wes, have you been on either Block Party or Clubhouse to this point? I, I actually did get an invite to Clubhouse, and and it's interesting. Um, uh, one of my uh, favorite um, Matthew Ingram, one of my favorite former GigaOM journalists that I still follow via a GigaOM Twitter list, um, made a comment I think yesterday uh, just how kind of disgusted he was about the cool kids, and you had to have an iPhone, and Android folks were out and whatever. But yeah, I I learned about Clubhouse last week, got an invite and have just barely listened to some things. And it's, you know, it's it's a new platform. It, there's m- mainly early adopters that are on there. And it is, um, uh, it reminds me, oh, maybe Peggy can help us out with the name of the, the platform. There was the real-time audio where you go oh, back yeah. and forth and, and uh, you'd have these different rooms. Um <laughs> I'll just, we'll just show our age here, not being able to think about this. Peggy will know what it is. Um, anyway, it reminds me of that because it is a live, it's not a recorded kind of thing with, with the tool I'm thinking of. We used it for our EdCamp OKC for organize, organized at one point and, uh, and it was kind of cool. And there were some conferences that people had over the holidays a few years ago using it, but you could go on there and catch up and you could listen to all this. I don't think with Clubhouse you can do that. I just think it's live, but it makes it a lot easier for people to join. Um, and then to have a lot of folks. That's it. See, Peggy came through for us. Voxer. It yeah, is there you fun. go. Yeah. Thanks, Peggy. That's why it's great to have a chat room, ladies and gentlemen. And we en- encourage everybody again to join us because it is wonderful to, you know, get to say, hey, help us out. And look, there's there's the answer. So, yeah, I've played with it a little bit. And, uh, okay, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm, at this point, podcasts are just phenomenal. And, and yes, it's cool to be able to talk live, but I honestly enjoy podcasts so much just because I can pause them. Right. It doesn't matter what the length is. I just listen to it when I can. And, um, yeah, Pe- Peggy's also mentioning Periscope. I mean, there's a number, I mean, there's a ton of, of tools that are definitely allowing for, for live interaction. Um, I, you know, because this is what Facebook did too when it rolled out, right? It was exclusive. You had to have a college. Mm-hmm email in order to join and you know people you know have this hype and and whatever about you know being built up about being able to join it but 
Um, I did find that article, by the way. Uh, so last week, and I'll put this in the show notes for this week. Um, I don't know whether we talked about it, but it's a Wired article from February 2nd, 2021. Google's next big Chrome update will rewrite the rules of the web. And this was talking about the impending takedown of third-party cookies in Chrome to be a big uh, win for privacy. But it also says, and Google, uh, because Google could end up, you know, having a lot more power when there's not these third-party companies. And then I found another article uh, that was just uh, from January 25th. Two weeks ago, Google effort to kill third-party cookies in Chrome rolls out in April. So unless you're on uh, an early adopter uh, dev channel for Chrome, you're not seeing this yet. But I think that, you know, curbing some of the wild west of data gathering, you know, really without permission. I mean, you kind of, we do give permission when we use it, but it's the silly thing of, yeah, I'm going to click this because, you know, if I don't, I... I can't even use this tool. Um, it's it's a it's a rather I don't know if, if saying it's a coercive uh, opt in is 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 accurate or not. But anyway, I think um, these are these are good good moves. But it, you know, it's going to be insufficient for Facebook on its own to to be able to do these things. And I although I applaud both Apple and Google for what they're doing, and and really Google is more on the Facebook side of things in terms of its benefiting uh, from that, from that data gathering. But, you know, as our, uh, our six colors friend um, mentioned on the twit podcast, um, just, Jason Snell, it's getting bad folks. It's really good. You turn, <laughs> it's, it's real. All right. The brain, the brain cell loss is real. Um, as Jason Snell said on twit, um, you know, marketing and advertising has, has happened and gone on for a long time before surveillance capitalism has reached this point and we've gotten this invasive with with data collection. And and as they were saying on this um you know, BBC Digital Planet podcast tonight talking about Brazil and banking, you don't I mean the way that the systems are designed matters and you don't have to have this voluminous, is that a word, huge volume of data collection that's being archived and kept, things can be designed in such a way so that you can have both visibility and transparency into what data you are sharing and to what is collected and so that it's actually not being being hoarded and, and kept by someone. And and that that can be a default position that, you know, we I think about, you know, NSA and, and Homeland Security for the United States and AT&T and, you know, the ways after 9-11 with the Patriot Act, we, we had, uh, there were some terms for that, but we basically had these massive pipes that were, you know, sort of jacked into the internet where they were just going to suck off all of the data that was flowing in and out of the United States and processing that. And, and, and just, um, anyway, it's, there's, there's dynamics here that, are probably beyond regulation, which is just sort of the trajectory of where governments that have always spied on each other and have always done things covertly to try to, you know, since the beginning of communication, the telegraph, I mean, we've just, we've always had these relationships that governments have had with telecoms. But I think that, like I said, we can't give up. We need to advocate for these things. And, you know, we're not the in the Western China right now with respect to, you know, having to have an app installed on our phone that, that captures every single thing that, that we write or, or say or whatever. Um, and we need a, to fight for that. Like, I think that is worth fighting for to prevent the, whether it's Orwellian or it's 
you know, whatever dystopian, you know, surveillance future. I, I think that is, is these values are, are important and they're worth fighting for. So we can't give up. Absolutely. Anything else in tech correction, sir? Yeah. Um, let's see. This is a this was a really great uh, podcast interview from The Daily. So this is from February 5th. And I'm not listening to The Daily every day. Um, but this uh, was a, a February 5th podcast that was called The Multi, the Large. How, how big was it? The $2.7 billion case against Fox News. And so it is uh, talking about this company called Smart Smartmatic. Um, and I'll, I'll drop a Reuters article from February 8th in there too, which is uh, that Fox News asks Smartmatic for um, the, that the lawsuit, you know, be dismissed. Basically, you know, journalists for Fox News and they're, they, what they are claiming is we were just reporting what, you know, these different, you know, conservative, you know, political candidates and, and political leaders were saying they literally invented because this company Smartomatic wasn't even working in Georgia. They, they weren't even employed and didn't even have a contract. And in several of the other swing states, and I think it was in Pennsylvania as well, they had no contracts, but wholesale blame and just, you know, massive losses that they've had and that they project to have. Uh, it was, it's really a, a fascinating, um, you know, dive into this because what they're contending, but this also could really chill speech is that the law, that the, the law and, and lawsuits may have a, a potential to curb disinformation. In other words, to inhibit Fox News and other companies from literally just making, and I won't use any expletives here because this is a family show, but making stuff up, um, when it came to what the, the, the alleged election fraud and they were being really specific about this company. And the other thing that I'll say about this is, and I, maybe I can find this article to put this in. Um, shout out to, to my friend, um, uh, Brian, um, who, uh, is we go twits on, uh, on Twitter. Who's, you know, working on this conspiracies and culture wars project with me. Um, QAnon has become, has been a cult and people are, are suffering, uh, losses of relationship and just the, the, the cost of being fed disinformation and literally a stream of lies, you know, repeatedly over time has had a huge cost and, and it is an ongoing cost that people are, are having. So I do think that we need to have accountability. Um, it's really interesting in that podcast that I mentioned the daily where the the journalist is talking about how he tended to just be really for, I think he, maybe he even worked for like Buzzfeed or something, but just, you know, put it out there, get all the information out there. It doesn't matter. I mean, if you put out disinformation, it, it, it can, it can have really toxic effects, especially, you know, when it's, when it's done in a coordinated effort as, as we've seen before. And so I thought that was an interesting article and it's going to be an important lawsuit to follow because if it is not dismissed and, you know, Fox does either have to settle or they end up having to pay a substantial fine, um, that could potentially have some chilling effect on, on, on journalists. But I think it also, and this is obviously the hopeful, idealistic or optimistic view. Um, perhaps it could really, you know, push journalists even more to fact check 
and and realize that you're going to have consequences if you know you're you're putting lies out here that have uh, have devastating impacts. So. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, there is no one solution to this. There is lots of solutions to this and maybe legal action and the notion of liable is one of them. Yep. Um, Let's see. Uh, Let me do the Jack Dorsey article. I think I put that one in here. Uh, This is pretty fascinating. This is the verge from February 9th. This is still under the tech correction. Um, back to the, you know, thinking about the algorithm and Facebook and the problems that we have when there's this one opaque algorithm that you really don't know exactly how it works, but yet that's what feeds you your information, news, all this. Um, this Reuters headline says, no, this is the wrong one. Um, This is from The Verge on the 9th. Twitter's Jack Dorsey wants to build an app store for social media algorithms. So in his vision here, and, and I don't know if he's thinking out loud about this or if this is something, how, how far along. there are. There's evidently a project they've worked on, but it's not super w- well developed. Um, Twitter, w- or sorry, yeah, Twitter would have an algorithm where you could... Um, you know, decide exactly how you want your, your news feed to work. And, and maybe even third party folks could develop that, but it would give some, some clarity, some transparency to the algorithm that is creating the news feed. And so that's interesting that Dorsey is talking about that for Twitter. Um, you know, could that happen for, for Facebook? I mean, that's really the secret sauce that, you know, generates them, uh, billions of dollars. So I don't know, but it is, Interesting as well as encouraging, I think, to see people wrestling with this and trying to think how can we better leverage these tools that that allow us to have fantastic connections and fantastic voice, but you know, try to to try try and avoid you know some of these really negative consequences. Um, and some of that may arguably come when you you know are having a single algorithm and letting this you know one company um, wield the, the the tremendous power that they do wield today. Well, and also remember, too, that uh, there was a, a time, it still exists at a smaller level, but where you could download third-party Twitter apps, right? That's one thing very unique about Twitter's early days is that you could download a, 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 a third-party app and be able to do that. And I recently, I'd forgotten that that existed uh, until I went back to iOS as my main phone operating system, and I downloaded TweetBot. And it, they're on a TweetBot 6. It's costing me. I mean, th- their economic model is to charge you a per-year cost to access TweetBot. But I open up TweetBot, and it's a completely different experience because they don't use the Twitter logarithm. So I'm seeing stuff that are, are fo- people I follow, right? It's not that I don't see my uh, the people I follow. It's that uh, Twitter tends to hand me stuff that it knows I'm going to engage with. So there's probably 10 or 15 people. A Wes happens to be one of them that I'm pretty frequently popping likes or retweets on. And so I see their stuff first. And there's merit to that, obviously, right? Because I think it helps create engagement on the app. It also diminishes voices I haven't heard from in a while. It also diminishes people uh, voice-wise that I've said I'm interested in. But it's not servient to me because maybe some of their content I like and some of it I, I, I don't, or maybe they're new enough to me that I don't have a real sense of, of their point of view on things. So I, I think that notion of a in a, in a logarithm a store is is fascinating. But and here's a way though that we don't have to wait, and and you can be shaping your feed right now. I was talking to, to my seventeen uh, year old and asked her if she was using lists on Twitter. She's not. Use Twitter lists. Build lists 
of folks that have similar interests and, and whatever, or follow lists. You can go to anybody's user profile. So go to twitter.com slash wfryer slash lists. And I mean, there's a ridiculous number of lists that I've made and I don't follow them all, but those are filtered feeds that don't get manipulated by the algorithm. As far as I know, it's the real time. This is how Twitter used to be. It used to just show you live, you know, who just posted something a second or two ago. But uh, now the algorithm, you know, is, is in, is in charge when you're on your home feed. But when you go to a list, you're back to sort of the old days, but you limit yourself to the people that are on that list. So I think that is really um, an important skill and Twitter is just so wonderful. I mean, I used it this week when, uh, well, this was like two days ago, the United Arab Emirates, I can transition to that space article, I think, uh, they became the fifth country to send a, a space probe, a spacecraft to a f another planet. Um, and they successfully put their hope probe uh, in Mars orbit. Um, how did I follow that? It was Twitter. You know, they, they had a, a hashtag, Arabs in Mars, uh, I think was the hashtag. And, you know, I was able to connect to their official Twitter feed and then there's a live, live stream and all this. It's just, it is amazing to be able to follow events like that that are happening in real time and being able to connect to, to different kinds of sources. Um, the, the one other thing before we leave the tech correction and I, I want to just mention, I don't know if you saw this, Jason, this is probably not going to pass Congress, but Amy Klobuchar, um, the headline for Ars Technica on February 5th, Klobuchar targets big tech with the biggest antitrust overhaul in 45 years. Um, I don't know that this is going to be passed. Of course, we do have a, a Democratic administration now, but I I actually think it's great that this is at least being written in legislation. She doesn't mention Facebook or the names of the companies, but it's called the Competition and Antitrust Law Enforcement Reform Act, Calera, um, and um I'll just read a quotation from it. Quote, while the United States once had some of the most effective antitrust laws in the world, our economy today faces a massive competition problem. This is Klobuchar. We can no longer sweep this issue under the rug and hope our existing laws are adequate. Uh, calling the bill the first step towards overhauling and modernizing our laws to protect competition in the current era. And this article introduced me to uh, a concept that I'd never heard of before. And it's called a mono, a monopony, monopsony. Monopsony, uh, which is the same as a monopoly, except it's a concentrated market power uh, that's inverted. Instead of one seller, uh, there may be many sellers, but only one buyer. Anyway, we've got this with Facebook and and also with Amazon, with eBooks and other kinds of things. This this market dominant. So interesting because this is again the tech correction in process. These are legislators in this case thinking about ways that the laws can be changed how can we protect consumers how can we protect privacy how can we limit some of this power and especially limit some of these really negative outcomes that we've seen happen because of the way social media and the information landscape and all this has has evolved over time did you dr Neifer, follow the the hope probe uh when it was captured into mars orbit uh did did you did you watch it live I did not watch it live. I did see a, an after uh, a play of the video, but uh, although I am into space, I think it pales in comparison to your space love. So, 
Well, this is the month where we're having three countries aircraft in Mars orbit, and or actually, and two are going to land. So China, we don't know exactly the moment because they're less transparent, but they're going to be putting, we think, their first rover on the surface of Mars. Wow. Um, either this week or next week. And then I think of the 18th, we're landing Perseverance. And that is going to, you know, it has some pretty awesome technology that's going to let it land in what we believe was a lake bed and a delta, which should be really good for finding fossils. It's going to, you know, dig down to try to find fossils, get the dirt, put it in a rocket and and actually we're going to fly around uh, with like a helicopter UAV that they've put on it. And then it's going to send Martian earth, you know, Martian rocks back to earth um, rendezvousing with another, you know, spacecraft and bringing it back. It's so cool. So I've been talking to my kids about this and just, you know, a little bit excited about it. Well, sir, uh, where to next? Oh, let's see. Why don't we, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the some of the Googles, a little updates for uh, for Chrome and Chromebook news? You got a couple. Sure. Of yeah. One one kind of interesting piece that, in fact, both of these I think would would have some interest to if you are the IT person in your school or you're at a Google school. First, Google Chrome is no longer support uh, computers from the mid two thousands and earlier, and it's such a very specific thing that they are uh, adapting in the core code uh, for the Chrome browser. But there was a, a an instruction set that started being available. Uh, I think it was like two thousand six or something that. Uh, um, uh, called SSE3 or streaming SIMDB. Um, that's an older technology, right? That was one of the instruction sets that would be on a chip and they're going to drop support for it, which means the Chrome is not going to, uh, is, is, is no longer going to work on, on some of these older computers. The only reason why I mention this is that it would not be a surprise to me if there weren't some 12, 14, 15, 16 year old computers, you know, kicking around at some schools. I know that, that there are schools that, that, that struggle to afford a technology refreshes on a regular basis. And to be honest, there are lots of ways to keep older computers like this running uh, uh, safe and securely, uh, uh, even at 15, 16, 17 years old. But if you are uh, an older vintage computer user, then certainly um, uh, uh, you might want to keep that in mind. The Chrome, which may have been keeping you going from a secure browsing standpoint, is no longer going to be there. I am reminded I did a brief tour this week of the uh, online platform that the North West Council for Computer Education is going to use at its March conference, March 17th through 18th, go to ncc.org slash conference 21. And, uh, the, we were, I was told a story by the vendor that, um, uh, uh, that they had a computer user a couple weeks ago that was going through the demo with them, but was complaining that their Windows 98 machine uh, was not working uh, with the platform, uh, which I'd be surprised to find out if anything in Windows 98 uh, internet-wise still worked, but there are still people that like to use vintage computers. And then one more that I thought was an interesting bit. Uh, this is from Chrome Unboxed on February 4th. Uh, Google has started working um, on... Um, uh, a, a new version of, 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 which would essentially be Chrome that runs over Chromebooks that changes the way it utilizes bandwidth, um, on a machine. And so it's going to give better performance for Meet and Zoom on Chromebooks because the way it uses the technology, um, on that piece. And I have to say, I do know some teachers that are running, uh, live, uh, remote classes over Zoom or Google Meets that oftentimes have to share a screen. 
um, to, you know, to teach the lesson they're teaching over those live platforms. And if you're on an older Chromebook, it can be sometimes be a real bummer because the fan starts whirling up and then you see a noticeable slowdown as you round out of processing power and RAM. So the last two days we were remote learning as we had some ice and cold temperatures. I mean, you know, terrible, Jason. It was 19 degrees. Can you believe we had such cold temperatures here? Um, but, you know, we're Google Meet primarily. And one of the things I was finding myself wanting, I was using my laptop to have my kids over here. But like with Zoom, you can completely have that panel of faces in a separate window and easily put that on another screen. Yep. When screen sharing, which I'm often doing when I'm teaching, you know, that panel is limited to, to only 16. At least I could see by, by joining, you know, with, with another account. Maybe I could have used my same account, but anyway, um, I'm glad they're working on that, you know, but it's still, as we've said, these platforms were not originally designed with education in mind uh, a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was even last week. We mentioned uh, Peggy had mentioned one. And then I, I mentioned another that was like class by zoom. There were some experiments that people are doing to try and develop some better platforms for the kinds of interactions that we want to have in school. So certainly the, improvements with breakout rooms and things like that are really welcome. Uh, and I use that pretty much every day uh, that we're remote learning, but lots, lots to still be done. Um, how about some security articles? Sure. Let's do it. All right. I put a couple in there. Uh, first off, this one is, this one is scary. So this is ZDNet from February 8th. Hacker modified drinking water chemical levels in a U.S. city. Now, apparently there is some precedent, and this is being reported. Um, I actually heard this one on my Google News update when I just asked Google to tell me about the news today. Um, but it was in um, Old Smar, Florida, which I think might be close to Tampa, actually. Uh, and supposedly they saw it really quickly. It happened on February 5th. Uh, they changed the percent of sodium hydroxide from 100 parts per million to 11,100 parts per million per million, uh, which would be, uh, you know, possibly a poisonous, you know, change. Uh, but they saw that this had happened and they, <coughs> you know, were quickly able to revert the change. But um, yeah, is, is the local drinking water control system, you know, in your community um, available um, to, to hackers? Is, is it, is it on the web? Um, oh, these are the kind of things that definitely can kind of scare you when you start diving into this and, and, um, you know, just if you're not tracking what's still being talked about with solar winds and how we're trying to figure out, you know, just how deep the Russians were and just how many, you know, uh, U.S. government agencies as well as uh, commercial entities, it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, but then this article actually flows right along with that. And this is the New York Times from February 6th. Uh, the title of this, which is an, is an op-ed, is How the United States Lost to Hackers. And the subtitle is America's Biggest vulnerability in cyber warfare is hubris. And the author basically contends because you've got offensive and defensive cyber operations. And the author is contending that the United States for so long has been, it's by Nicole uh, Perlroth. We have, we have relied so much on offense that we have really neglected defense. And these offensive tools are now in the hands of all kinds of actors. And we've had, you know, former NSA employees become contractors and go to work for, you know, different Middle Eastern countries that have, you know, do not have a representative democracy. And, you know, it, back to 2007 when Stuxnet happened. And if you're not familiar with that history, 
use the Wikipedia article as I talked to my kids today as a launch pad to launch you into that. Stuxnet was a joint operation between the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency and the Israeli Intelligence Agency, which was very successful, but it got into the centrifuges of Iran and we were able to, I say we, I live in the United States, uh, we were able to actually, um, you know, disable and, and I think blow up, you know, centrifuges and cripple the Iranian nuclear effort for a while. But then Stuxnet was out in the wild. And so we've had these other hacks with these different packages. And this article talks a little bit about some of those. I'm trying to think of some of the names of them. But these things are now out in the wild. And the things that can be done, um, unfortunately, are, are devastating. And it's a, it, it, there's a subtitle here. It is a Pandora's box. So what does it mean? <laughs> Number one, you know, we need to be doing more computational thinking and coding. Does everyone need to become a coder? No. Does every student need to be introduced to some of the basics of computational thinking and coding? I would say absolutely yes. At a very bare minimum, we need to be aware of how algorithms are trying to, and, and in many cases succeeding in, manipulating us, feeding us information, you know, shaping the, the world that we see, the things that we perceive, the things that we think about. And we need for our, our students to be part of these conversations. And we need, you know, even more smart geeks <laughs> to be out there, ethical, smart geeks to be out there, you know, helping us navigate this world. Um, it is sobering. It's the kind of article that makes me think, hmm, Maybe we should move to a rural area where we'll have solar power in a well and, you know, the the, the loss of, of the electrical grid might not be devastating to us because, you know, I read I read um, the book Lights Out by it wasn't by Brokaw. Um, it was by one of our our main. Um, I'll, I'll have to Google it. Lights Out, a cyber attack, a nation unprepared um, by. Ted Koppel. Yes. Um, one of the, and by the way, of the, I'm sorry, Martin Horaji, if you're listening tonight, because you know I know I should know the, 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 the author of that book. But go ahead. Have you read that one or listened to I it? I have. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it is. And um, anyway, these the conversations that, that Jason and I have each week as we think about these things, you know, some of these are just, you know, interesting to think about. And ooh, that's cognitively interesting. And then there's other things that you're like, hmm. You know, I really need to get, you know, a better handle on my own passwords and get, you know, get rid of all those duplicates and those those compromised passwords that I have. Uh, and then other things, you know, make make you make you think about preparedness and stuff like that. So good New York Times article. What's your prescription, Jason? Do you have a prescription for for solving our cybersecurity? <laughs> uh, well, I do think we need to be training more cybersecurity uh, folks, and and I do think that there I've seen a lot of great career pathways information uh, uh, where Pete, you can get started on this in high school and. I would say that if you're so inclined, uh, it is a growth industry and the pay is pretty solid, and you don't necessarily need a two and four year uh, a college credential to get into the industry. And at the Mountain Moot, which was hosted in the wonderful state of Montana last summer, and I'm sure will be happening again, um, I actually met somebody who was really involved in in doing training for various um, various agencies uh, in in the government and military. And yeah, it is a good career path and one that actually companies like the the company our, our son works for, Booz Allen Hamilton, um, they invest it with with hackathons and different kinds of competitions and events for kids, you know, 
yes, it's great to learn to play baseball and football and basketball and all these things, but we need to be encouraging the geeks to, you know, use, use their skills for good and not for evil and to have opportunities to shine. And those kinds of, of opportunities for, for students, you know, need to be amplified and maybe, you, you you know a young person in your life that you can point in in the direction of some of those kinds of activities. So, absolutely. All right, where to next? Well, it uh, looks like we are uh, near the top of the hour. I wanted to get out a couple of quick, interesting Apple articles. Uh, I, I fear I'm opening uh, Pandora's App Store here a little bit, but um, the Verge reported yesterday that there is a bill in North Dakota that would force Apple to allow alternative app stores and payment systems on inside of, of their platforms. And there's several reasons why this is interesting. Obviously, my neighbor to the east, North Dakota, uh, it's a it's a neighbor of Montana, although, uh, you know, the vastness of both Montana and North Dakota mean that I am nowhere near North Dakota. I, I could drive... Uh, if, or if I drove to the east uh, uh, eight hours, I would hit North Dakota. If I drove west eight hours, I would hit the, the ocean. So that gives you a sense on how far away North Dakota uh, is in the state of Montana. But they have a bill at the legislature that is in part uh, has to do with this thing that Apple's got going with Fortnite, uh, uh, arguing about the 30 percent that Apple charges uh, developers to use payment systems inside of there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But Apple has pushed back to say that if you allow alternatives, it destroys the iPhone. And some Apple commentators said that that was too much. Their, the rhetoric was, was too much to say. But I, mean, I have to say, one of the reasons why I am glad to be back on um, iOS is that I do feel more secure on iOS than I do on Android. Because every other day, there's a new set of articles that firmware garbage, or I'm sorry, not firmware, app garbage has ended up on the Play Store, which is what uh, Android calls its its app store, and uh, stuff that's stealing your identity or way abusing the privileges of your phone. And you see a lot less of those references on Apple stuff, and Apple's starting to double down on privacy. And one of the ways that they can do that is by saying that since we control all the mechanisms of software on this platform, that we're able to then uh, uh, have some more serious privacy guarantees than they would be able to otherwise. So, uh, uh, Wes, do you anticipate that if if this bill passes, you will immediately take your family to North Dakota to free up your iPad. It'd be South Dakota. We've got, you know, family in Karen. So we'd be, we'd be going back to the Friar tree, tree claim, which, you know, my dad still owned some land there until a few years ago. I don't think so. It'll be interesting though, to see the impact of this kind of state legislation, right? Because in the same way that California has been pushing for privacy uh, regulation and, and privacy rights. And there've been people wondering, like, is that then going to become the norm that, you know, goes around the country? It'll be interesting to see how this is handled. Um, cause at some point it's a federalism thing, right? Because yeah. it's a multinational corporation. It, you know, it's a multi-state, obviously, you know, corporation. And so does, does North Dakota have a unique, you know, authority to, to be able to regulate and tell Apple what to do? I kind of think that would be, a federal thing. So, but I'm not a lawyer, so don't take my word for it. Well, and what I would say is that California gets to throw its weight around because it's California with its, its nearly 40 million people and by itself will be the seven biggest economy on earth. North Dakota, um, 
has a, well, basically about a 60th of, of that population. Their population is 762,000. My guess is, and, uh, uh, is that Apple's initial response to that wouldn't be to adapt its hardware to run other software app stores. It's going to be say that the iPad is no longer available in North Dakota. Um, and that you can't buy it there. You can't take it there. They will put le- licensing information and licenses that you are not allowed to utilize an, an iPhone. Phone, uh, an iPad, a MacBook Pro um, in the state of North Dakota. So, um, you know, we'll have to see. I purely from the political geek part of me, I would be interested to find out how our good friends um, uh, in, in in North Dakota, uh, uh, you know, might try to pull that off. Absolutely. Let me do a quick couple more, and then I think we're probably top of the hour for Geek of the Week. Um, I put these under connectivity. Um, this is Ars Technica, February 9th. ISPs step up fight against SpaceX. Tell FCC that Starlink will be too slow. Um, this is interesting. So as we've talked about on the show, yeah, start, yeah, whine, whine. Uh, Starlink is the uh, SpaceX initiative to bring high-speed satellite connectivity to Jason's family and millions of others potentially around the world. And um, they have successfully won some money promises from the FCC, from the federal government. Uh, and so, you know, some, some people are upset. It's really, it's interesting how that whole auction business works. And rather than just like pay up front for connectivity, I think it might've been a, another article that I read, not this one that was saying, look, it, the way we handle this is just kind of poor. We should just, you know, pay these companies to, you know, put in, put in this connectivity and, and put in this bandwidth. <clears throat> the other article that I put in under connectivity is from voice of America and the headline from February 5th is from Myanmar to Kashmir unrest is met with internet blackouts. And if you did not know it, there was a military coup in the country of Myanmar. And I think President Biden just imposed by executive order some sanctions against uh, their government and their, their military leaders. And part of the playbook of what we see different authoritarian and fascist leaders doing in the world today is they will turn off the internet. They will, in some cases, just like shut down access to Facebook and Twitter. But in some cases, they'll just freaking turn off the entire internet. And that's what happened. And journalists did not have an ability to report to the world about what was happening because cell phone tower connectivity was cut, landline internet, all of it was just cut. Interestingly, it, it kind of segues back to that Elon Musk article. Won't it be interesting when Starlink is available and when folks can, and I guess you could have a sat phone now, but when that access is greater, that even if the central government cuts off the internet or cuts off Facebook, hey, baby, I got myself a Starlink satellite here or satellite link up, and I'm going to still report the news. Journalism is hugely important. It's important around the world. And it's unfortunate, of course, to see this kind of thing happening. And hopefully, um, you know, journalists are going to continue to find ways to report on what is happening within their country and provide a very important service in the whole realm of human rights and representative democracy and, and freedom and all those kind of things. Um, so that's it. I think we probably ought to geek of the week. It. Okay. Uh, would you like to start? Sure. I only have one and mine is super cool. So this is from live science on September the 28th of last year. AI resurrects 54 Roman emperors in stunningly lifelike images. Now shout out to Jonas Hamilton, one of our uh, history teachers uh, at our school who points out that, you know, 
did all these guys really look that handsome? You know, we have Photoshop today, so who knows what kinds of embellishments the sculptors did. But basically, they um, have applied AI technology to create the most lifelike, you know, visual images of these kind of creepy statues of like, you know, they look zombie-like with these white eyes and stuff like that. And uh, it's pretty cool. And I uh, sent this to our teacher who or one of our teachers that teaches Latin to say, hey, take a look at this. This is, you know, kind of kind of neat stuff. Um, what what do you have for us, Dr. Knife? I'm excited to announce, like, this is actually my thing, which is not, that the second edition of basically my favorite education book of all time, Why Don't Students Like School, from Dr. Daniel Willingham, who's a cognitive scientist, um, it will is out soon. Um, and I just noticed that my link on there is all funkified, so I wonder what the deal with that is. I will correct that link, but um, why don't you or why don't students like school is an outstanding book that goes through essentially the power of cognitive science to help you be a better teacher. What I like about this book is it's not only goes through the theories and why, but it also does an excellent job of giving you suggestions about what this might look like in a practical classroom. Uh, uh, Dr. Willingham has been very much at the forefront of helping dispel myths about learning styles, for example, which, by the way, cannot be confirmed in research uh, and studies. It is a dated notion. If you're still running around trying to plan around learning styles, I think that your heart is in the right place but perhaps your science is not. So, uh, again, I think it's out in uh, the end of March, I believe, uh, but I'm so excited for the second edition. It will include an entire chapter on research, cognitive research as it relates to the use of tech in the classroom. Fantastic. Um, Yeah, I don't think Amazon has that second edition maybe listed yet, but uh, I did find the link here on Wiley.com, so I will drop that into the chat and... We'll put that into the show notes as well. So, Dr. Knife, where can folks find you when um, your your partner remembers to show up on Wednesday nights and uh, you're, you're you're not here on the Web Tech Situation Room? Um, well, I am on the Twitters, uh, Tech Savvy Teach. And as uh, Wes very kindly showed before, I am part of the Northwest Council of Computer Education 2021 Virtual Conference, March 17th uh, to 20th. I will be doing several presentations there, including, I think, one, two, three presentations that are brand new. I like to uh, uh, use NCC every year to kind of break out some new stuff. NCC.org slash conference 2021. And you, sir. There you go. And I am W. Fryer on Twitter. You can find lots of links to continue learning with me at westfriar.com slash after to include my food blog, which I'm continuing to enjoy updating. So we appreciate you tuning in. We want to encourage you to follow us on Twitter if you do not already. That is the best way generally to find out if we're not going to be here on Wednesday night. We try to do that early when we can. Uh, We want to thank Peggy for joining us in our chat room as always. Encourage you to visit edtechsr.com where you can find our uh, small audio MP3 files that we've put up there on the Amazon cloud, as well as some smaller video versions. But you can always subscribe to us on YouTube uh, and you can check out our show notes, not only for this show that you'll find in that podcast episode, but you can always go to the gargantuan Google doc, which is really maybe going to become a Guinness book of world records experiment. How long can a Google doc with functional links actually get? And you can find that at edtechsr.com slash links. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe. And uh, remember, debate skills are good. They can help you uh, hopefully get through the fast conclusion of your show uh, without too many stumbles. So yay, go, go debate.